We're in Luke chapter 9, as uh, Stephanie read earlier, and I'd like to read the passage again. It helps me uh, to be in the right frame of mind to do that. And uh, so in Luke chapter 9, and I'm going to ask you to stand with me to show honor to God's word as we read, if you can, if you're able. Verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord God, I ask you to speak to us this morning through this passage to help me to, to speak and, and teach your word in such a way that draws us all close to you and speaks to us about the things in our own lives that we need to hear. Lord, may your spirit direct everything said and done. May he be the one who leads us into all truth this morning who truly is our teacher and instructor. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Have you ever needed an attitude adjustment? <laughs> Those of us who are parents, probably most of us in this room, have probably used that phrase with our kids. You need an attitude adjustment. But all of us need attitude adjustments from time to time. And God is in the business of adjusting our attitude. He does that in many ways. One of the ways he does that for me is, is through worship. Uh, when, uh, when we were singing earlier and every time we sing, or maybe when I'm just driving down the road in my truck and singing along to the radio, uh, singing worship to the Lord, the Lord adjusts my attitude. He helps me to see how majestic and wonderful and marvelous and all-sufficient He is in the midst of whatever I'm going through. When we sit and we hear the Word of God preached or we're in our ABS and we hear it taught or when we're studying the Bible on our own, God is in the business during those times of adjusting our attitude. At least He's we hope he is. We hope we're listening. Because we're sinners, we always need to get our attitude adjusted periodically, don't we? Recalibrated. Well, the disciples were just like us. You know, through life, we have all kinds of experiences going on, all kinds of things that... Uh, pull our attention this way or that way. And, and some of them are good things. The disciples have been going through that. We've been in chapter 9 for several weeks now. And, 
And if you remember, go back to the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus had sent his 12 out and given them the power to heal the sick and to cast out demons. And they had had successful ministry and they came back and they were all excited about what God had been doing in their lives. And then they were with Jesus as the crowd had gathered and they had been with Jesus a long time and everybody was tired and hungry and they came to Jesus and said, we need to send these people away so they can get some rest and get something to eat. And Jesus said, you feed them. <laughs> and Jesus miraculously with five loaves and two fish fed 5,000 people and they saw the largest public miracle they could ever have imagined, never could have imagined. And then three of them went up to the mountain with Jesus when he was transfigured before them and they saw this glorious vision of Jesus and they saw Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus and, and then this cloud came on them that they could probably almost feel the presence of God and they were afraid. and They saw that and had that wonderful experience. It was such a wonderful and frightening experience they were afraid to tell anybody about it. He came back down the mountain from that experience and there was a young boy whose father had brought him and the young boy was demon possessed and, and they saw Jesus cast the demon out and the other nine apostles were wondering why couldn't we do it after we had all that success just not that long ago and they heard Jesus instruct them about that and they had seen a lot of things happening they had witnessed the power of Jesus and They'd witnessed power in their own lives and failure in their own lives. They had been through life. That's pretty much the way life is. We have successes. We have failures. We have happy times. We have sad times. But through all of that, we kind of get off center sometimes. We develop wrong ideas or wrong attitudes and, and, and those things creep into the way we think and the way we act and, and so we need to be, we need to have an attitude adjustment. And that was what was happening with the disciples. They had an argument. It tells us in verse 46 and we're told in the book of Mark about this story. Mark says this argument was happening while they were on their way back to Capernaum. So the argument had been going on for a little while. Matthew tells us that they asked Jesus a question. The question that they asked Jesus was, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? They didn't say which one of us is the greatest. But they asked the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? But it tells us here that, verse 47, that Jesus knew the reasoning of their hearts. He knew that even though this argument was going on, and they were certainly trying to keep that argument secret from him, and even though they had asked this question about who in the kingdom of heaven was the greatest, he knew what the real issue was in their hearts. He knows what the real issue is in our hearts as well. This was an issue that 
reared its head in the life of the disciples more than once. As a matter of fact, Luke tells us that just before Jesus went into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, they got in this argument again. This was something that was being brought up over and over in their lives. And the argument was, as it says here in verse 46, which of them was the greatest? You know, we have a, an obsession as human beings with who's the greatest. I grew up liking uh, being a fan of boxing. I, I don't keep up with that anymore. I don't even know who the heavyweight champion is anymore. But when I was growing up, I remember Muhammad Ali. I am the greatest. That guy, he could get your attention. He was great. I was kind of more of a Joe Frazier kind of guy. But Muhammad Ali, he had the flash. He could talk. People loved him. Or they hated him, but they watched him. He got everybody's attention, and he was the greatest. He liked to brag about being the greatest. But we all watched him brag about being the greatest because we're interested in the greatest. It's human nature. Competition. Yesterday, some of you watched a ball game. <laughs> By God's grace, he had my mind on something else, and I forgot to turn it on. Later, when I turned on the radio, I realized I didn't want to listen to it. So I turned it back off. So, you know, we do. We do get obsessed with who's the greatest. Every year, this part of the country, we're wondering, can we win the SEC? We want to be the greatest. You know, it's funny. We want to be the greatest. We're not on the team. Have you ever noticed... How we are as Vol fans. We won. Did, no, we didn't win. We didn't win. They won. We just watched. But we, we have this obsession with who's the greatest. The title of our message this morning is Kingdom Mission Perspective. Because we need the right perspective. Because human beings tend toward this idea of who is the greatest. And they had this argument among the disciples. Who is the greatest? Now, when you think about this argument, if you're like me, you automatically think that what they're saying is each one of them is asserting themselves as the greatest. And they might have been doing that. Certainly some of them probably were doing that. And, you know, they could even hearken back to the idea that uh, they all went out just not that long before this and, and were casting out demons and, and healing the sick. And it might be that Peter, James, and John, who were up on the mountain when the other nine couldn't cast the demon out of this little boy, they might have come back and said, well, if we'd been down here, we could have done it. 
You know, they might have thought that it was about them. But you know what else we tend to do as people? We tend to elevate someone else. And it might have also been that some of them thought, well, I think Peter's the greatest. I think James is the greatest. I think John is the greatest. It might have not been that they were all thinking they themselves were the greatest, but that one of the other of the twelve was the greatest. But whichever it was, the point is they had a problem with being obsessed with who was the greatest. What was that problem? Why did they have this problem? It's human nature. You know, Paul deals with this in the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he talks to them about how they, were, they had divisions. You remember? Some would say, I am of Paul. I follow Paul. Paul's my favorite preacher. Man, that guy. I like Paul. Some would say, I'm of Cephas or Peter. Peter, Peter really, I mean, he's the one that preached on the day of Pentecost. I mean, he's the original preacher. Some might say, I'm of Apollos. Wow, he can turn a phrase. But Paul said, you're divided. Is Christ divided? And so this mentality of the greatest causes problems in our spiritual life. This, let's talk about this who is the greatest mentality. If we have a who is the greatest mentality, what does that do? Well, first of all, in order to have a who is the greatest mentality, one has to assume that there is a greatest other than Jesus. One has to assume that there is a greatest other than Jesus. And so we begin to put someone else in a position of the greatest and our focus is on them as the greatest, whether it's ourselves or whether it's someone else. The second thing a mentality, a mentality of the greatest does is it determines a set of criteria for levels of greatness. What is your set of criteria for levels of greatness? If I'm going to decide that someone is the greatest, then I've got to have some way to measure that greatness, right? In football, it's the wins and losses. But we do this in all of life. We, we measure the greatness. We have to set some sort of criteria. And then thirdly, we assign value to people Based on that criteria. So if we have the mentality that brings up an argument like who is the greatest. I want you to think through this with me. What we have to do is these three things. We have to assume there is a greatest. We have to determine that set of criteria we'll judge them by. And then we judge people on that criteria which creates a greater than, less than Mindset. Does that make sense? So there is a real problem with having this type of thinking. This is the problem of personal pride. The problem of personal pride. They, they are filled with pride. That's really what this is all about. 
Pride is what leads us to, to talk about who's the greatest. Pride is the problem. And so if we have personal pride, we're thinking of ourselves. We have accomplished certain things, therefore we have something to be proud about. You know, I, I struggle with that word because it's such, it's such a, a big part of who we are. We use that word all the time. I'm an American. I'm proud to be an American. Think about that. Why are you proud to be an American? Unless you chose to come here from somewhere else, you didn't do anything to become an American. You were born here. By God's grace, you're an American. I'm proud to be a Tennessean. You know, I, I am a ball fan, I got to tell you. I, I remember, and you know, it's funny, we have to go way back to have these great memories of being a ball fan. So. <laughs> But we don't have to go quite this far, but, but I do remember in 1985, Sugar Bowl. And I was actually a, I was actually a, a fairly new ball fan. Don't tell anybody, but I was born in Dayton, Ohio. And the first 12 years of my life, I'm making a big confession first 12 years of my life, I was a Buckeye. I'm sorry. But I did get converted in 1975. We moved here. My parents moved here. They were from Tennessee. And we came here, and the Vols were awful that year. And we didn't have cable, so I couldn't watch the Buckeyes, I couldn't watch the Reds, and I couldn't watch the Bengals, and so I was very sad, but eventually I fell in love with the Vols, and so I'm, I'm a Vol fan, I do, I enjoy watching them play, I really do, but I remember that 1985 game in New Orleans, I was there, my, my, my in-laws took us to that game, and it's the first big game of anything like that I'd ever been to and it was and we went to that game and after the game was over we were walking out and uh, all the fans coming out and I can remember this chant started many of you have heard this and participated in it it's great to be a Tennessee Vol I remember the, the pride that welled up in my heart that I was a Tennessee Vol Pride is so ingrained in us, it, it permeates our society. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with enjoying your football team. Please don't, don't misunderstand. Or whatever fan you are of whatever team you're a fan of. If you're not a Vol and you're in here today, please accept my apologies. But you know, that, that's, not, that's not the issue. The issue is that pride is such, is such a, an integral part of who we are that we almost sanctify it. And we need an attitude adjustment. We need to check ourselves and be careful with pride. This side of heaven, I don't think we're ever going to get fully rid of it. But we need to recognize it. 
And Jesus called them to recognize it. Well, there's not only personal pride, but then there's the problem of group pride, which is what we were just talking about. And that's something else that was going on with them. If you look down in verse 49, of all people to say this, it's John. John, the apostle of love. The one who later at the cross, Jesus would say that he was the one that he wanted to take care of his mother. The one who reclined when they ate that last supper with his head on Jesus' chest. John, of all people, says this, verse 49. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he did not follow with us. And Jesus rebuked John. Because John had an attitude problem. John's attitude problem in this verse was that if you're not in our group, then you're not right with God. Now, obviously, Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the one and only Savior. And there's no other faith that leads us to God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Him. But He's not talking about within the faith of Christ. He's talking about just another group who are also following God. And He says, this man was casting out demons, but because he's not part of our group, we told him to stop. I told him to stop. Remember, several years back, I was, uh, was in Quebec and met this pastor, a priest in his church on a Wednesday night. And the next day, we were talking and he was asking me about my experience with the Lord and my personal testimony. And I shared with him how I was saved in a Methodist church. Saved in a Methodist church. Are you sure you're saved? <laughs> yeah. Methodists get saved too. <laughs> Newsflash. You know, it can be denominational divisions. It could be divisions over what version of the Bible you read. Well, if you don't read the King James, you may not truly be Right with God. You may not be actually getting the word of God. Or if you do read the King James. You just don't really understand things like we do in the newer version. It could be your worship music is too modern. Or it could be your worship music is too old. It could be. You wear a tie at church on Sunday or you don't wear a tie at church on Sunday. We let all these things divide us into groups. And it can be anything. It doesn't have to be just the way you dress or what the name is over the church that you go to. 
It could be any number of things. It could also be skin color, which is something we've been talking about a lot here at West Park. But whatever it is, what it boils down to is it's the sin of partiality. It's sin. It's sin to look at another group and think my group is better than their group. My group is right with God. Their group is not right with God because they don't have the same name over the church building. They don't have whatever it is. They come from a different part of town. They come from a different part of the country. Whatever it is, it's the sin of partiality. What does the word of God say about this sin of partiality? James chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, I want you to think about that first sentence just for a minute. As you hold faith in Christ, he says, James says, do not also hold what? Partiality. In other words, partiality is incompatible with faith in Christ. Partiality is absolutely opposite of what faith in Christ represents. It does not go with Christianity. Then he says, for if a man... Wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. You have not then made distinctions among, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. That's the sin of partiality. Now James uses an example of a church congregation who sees a poor man come in and he's wearing shabby clothes and they say, well, you need to sit over there because he is not going to be treated the same because of the way he looks. But that's just an example. It doesn't matter what the division is. His skin color is different. His economic status is different. His accent is different. His nationality is different. The problem is he's different. And we tend to gravitate to those who are like us. It's human nature. 
But it's sin nature. And so this was the sin of partiality. This was the sin that John, yes, John the apostle, the loving apostle who wrote so much of the love of God, John committed this sin. They're not in our group. We tried to stop them. So, talked about the problem, the problem of personal sin, the problem of group, or the personal uh, partiality, power, what is the word? I forgot the word. <laughs> pride, there it is. Personal pride and group pride. Now there's the, the power of kingdom perspective. The power of kingdom perspective. Look in verse 48. Verse 47, we'll read in 47. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, among you all, is the one who is great. So Jesus attacks, first of all, the personal pride. The personal pride that caused them to be talking about who was the greatest. And how does he deal with that personal pride? Well, first of all, he gives them a living illustration. He takes a child and brings a child near him. You remember there was another time when they were trying to bring the children to Jesus. You remember the attitude of the disciples? They were trying to keep the children away from Jesus. Why would you keep the children away from Jesus? Well, they're just children. They really can't understand. They're really not all that important. They can't offer anything to the group. So the little children don't need to come to Jesus. They can wait till they get older and then they can come to Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, suffer the little children to come to me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And here he brings a child next to him. And look at what he said. He said, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. What he's saying is this, this child represents the weakest in our society. The one who can contribute the least. If you were like the people that James referred to in James chapter 2 in your church and you had a little child walk in, well, you're going to say, well, that, the child needs to go to the nursery. We're not going to give the child the best seat in the auditorium. After all, they might make some noise and disrupt things and they might be a little inconvenient they're not going to offer anything to the group they're actually going to take things away from the group so so they're not really of value and therefore since they're not of value i have assessed a value and they're not of the greatest value then i'm going to put them to the side jesus is saying we need to receive that child how in my name he said 
Now, when the Bible, when, when in the New Testament, Jesus says, in my name, or we talk about doing something in the name of Jesus, it means we're doing it for the sake of Jesus, to accomplish the will of Jesus, as we represent Jesus. That's what we mean when we talk about in the name of Jesus. So Jesus is saying, for my sake, for my sake, if you're going to be a follower of me, you need to learn this new way of thinking. This new way of thinking is that you receive the weakest that can give you nothing. You receive them. You take them in. You make them part of what's going on. Part of what's, what your, your group is. You include them. Even if they can't offer anything to you. Even if they can't advance your agenda, even if they have nothing to give. You bring them in, in my name. And then he wants us to understand another level of this. He said, if you do this, if you receive this child in my name, you receive me. And if you receive me, you receive the one who sent me, my father. So what he's saying is, if you and I switch it around, we quit worrying about who's the greatest. Because you know what we want to do? We want to gravitate toward the greatest. You know, sometimes I'm tempted to become an Alabama fan. <laughs> they don't lose. Very often. And wouldn't it be easy just to do that? <laughs> I know, that's blasphemous. But you get my point. My point, I hope you get my point. I'll, I'll elaborate in case you didn't get, you might have been so dazzled by the very thought. But if you, if you choose to join up with only the winner, then you're going to constantly be looking for the winner, right? If you're only worried about who's the greatest, you're going to just always gravitate toward, toward what you have decided is the greatest. And you know what you're going to do when you do that? You're going to neglect the least. And you're going to assign a value to them. And you're going to decide who is better and who is worse. Who is to be preferred and who is to be ignored. What if you and I are in the group that's being ignored? What's that feel like? See, Jesus said we need to turn this thing upside down. Instead of being, being concerned about who's the greatest, let's take the least and focus on them. And when we do it to the least of these, Jesus said, you do it unto me. Because Jesus identifies with the least of these. There is no greater than Jesus. His name is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess to, to, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the way God wants it. God the Father wants it that way. He wants Jesus to be exalted above all. There is no greater. 
If the greatest one identifies with the least one, who do we think we are? If we don't identify with the least. And then he deals with the problem of group pride. Verse 50. But Jesus said to him, to John, after John said, we, we tried to stop this guy who wasn't following with us. Jesus said, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. You know, a lot of pastors would criticize our pastor and have because he will have fellowship with pastors from other denominations. Praise the Lord. He will, he will fellowship with people who are not Baptists. And, and before they even got that far, they weren't too crazy about him fellowship with other Baptists if they weren't independent, fundamental, premillennial <laughs> Baptists. Fellowship with Southern Baptists. Why do we do these things? If they name the name of Christ, if they believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, that He died for our sins, that He rose again, and that salvation is by faith in Him alone without works. I don't care what the name is over the building. And thank God we have a pastor who doesn't care. Folks, we let things, we, we set up these barriers around us. That keep us from being able to minister to people. Keep us from being able to reach out to people who are different from us. Because we set up these man-made fences. And we can call it whatever we want. We can dress it up. We can rename it. But the Bible calls it sin. That's what James called it. You show partiality. So what's the answer? Well, we need to replace pride with humility. We need to quit gravitating toward the greatness. And gravitate toward the least. We need to love as Jesus loved. And then we need to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. We need to be more about following the cause of Christ. The purpose of the kingdom. Than we are about advancing our own ideas. And purposes. We exist because of him. I'd like to close with motto of the Moravian Church. The Moravian Church 
Their motto is, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, love. Pretty good model, even though they're not Baptists. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, forgive us. Help us. For Lord, I know that we have all from time to time and maybe even recently been guilty of the sin of partiality. Lord, we certainly are all plagued with pride. It's such a part of our sinfulness. But Lord, you've redeemed us. You've given us a new heart. You've given us a heart to love you and to love people. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will deep, look deep down inside of each one of us and identify the sin that you want us to repent of and forsake, to ask forgiveness for. And Father, I pray that you'd give us a new resolve, a new resolve to love everybody to reach out to the least of these to not ascribe value to one and lesser value to another Lord help us to be people who have your heart beating inside of our chest your heart for people for it's in Jesus name we pray